I invite you to turn, if you'd like, to Ephesians 4, uh, verses 17 to 19 is what we'll be looking at. Lord willing, next week we'll look at the, the positive side of things, but before Paul gets positive in light of what we're supposed to put on, he tells us uh, the, the life that the Gentiles are living and how we're uh, not supposed to live. All right. So we'll read uh, verses 17 down to 24, and then we'll just look at uh, 17 to 19. So let's, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll read it. <clears throat> Our Father, as we come to your word, uh, we recognize that uh, we can approach it with uh, the same approach with which we come to a newspaper or a good novel that we like, and thus miss a lot of what is important in it to not pay attention as we ought. So we need your Holy Spirit to really impress upon our hearts that this is your living and active word. It's what you've written. It's what you move men to write. And uh, um, it's what is powerful uh, to change us, to save us, to edify us, to strengthen us. And so we pray that you would powerfully work in each of us. You know what every heart and soul in this room needs. So we pray that you would supply it by the work of your spirit. For Jesus' sake, amen. All right, Ephesians uh, 4 at verse 17. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Uh, one more time, just verses 17 to 19. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives this evening. So beloved people of hope and everyone with us here uh, tonight, a, a very simple outline. We're going to look at verse 17 first in light of uh, the command against such a life of emptiness. And then, uh, uh, secondly, verses 18 to 19, the portrait of such a life. So this is really a life of emptiness. Martin Lloyd-Jones actually had a similar title to the sermon. I thought it was great, the, the emptiness of life without Christ. So what is the command against it, and what does this life look like? Paul kind of gives us a, a snippet of it. And Lloyd-Jones actually said, I've got a quote from him that I think is really helpful, but he, he said that this, these verses are actually a great insight into human psychology. If you want to boil the, the uh, human psychology down for a lost person, here it is. Here's their, here's their thinking. Here's where, where their mindset uh, dwells. But um, anyways, I want to first look at the command against such a life of emptiness. Uh, Paul actually commands us against it. And he begins by saying, now, in your ESV, or it's actually the word, therefore. Could it, it could be therefore. Um, so the call here, before he even walks into what we're supposed to be doing, I want to just spend a little bit of time on that word. Uh, the word now is transitioning us from, you could argue really, the, even the first three chapters, but also the beginning of chapter four, uh, where Paul has been talking about how God saved us, 
what he saved us from, and then at the beginning of chapter 4, as we've looked at, the unity that he's building in the church and the way he's building the church. And from here on out, for the rest of the letter, there's almost no doctrine, meaning, <laughs> meaning even after he transitioned in Ephesians 4.1 to a little bit of uh, here's how we're called to live, he kind of wavers into doctrine a little bit and talks about unity of the church, etc. That's almost all done now. He's going to start uh, going into command after command, a bunch of do's and don'ts. But he doesn't just dive into it in verse 17. He says, therefore, which is very important. So he's saying, look, in light of the fact that God has saved us before the foundations of the world, in light of the fact that he's elected us in his love, brought us from death to life, in light of the fact that he's brought Jews and Gentiles together in the church and that we're one body doing this thing together, and in light of the fact that God is after the unity of the church and also the growth of the church, in light of all of this, he's going to call us to live a certain way. And it's tempting to think, you know what, why I do things doesn't really matter. Why does Paul have to use that word therefore? Why can't he just say, look, do this? But in Paul's mind, he uses the word therefore to bring us back so that we're reminded of where he came from before we launch into uh, what he's about ready to tell us. So if we're going to avoid living the way the Gentiles do, the way the rest of the world does, God thinks it's very important that we do so for the right motivations. Uh, for us to go out into the world and say, you know what, I'm not going to live like that person down the road because I think their life's a mess and I'm just better than they are, that's a horrible motivation. And if we don't think motivations matter, just read through Matthew, Matthew 6, what Jesus said about the Pharisees, right? They pray, praying's a good thing, right? But not for the reasons that they were praying. Giving alms, a great thing, right? But, but not for bad reasons. Like I think Jesus would say, keep your money. Um, uh, uh, doing our good works, of course we're called to do them, but not just to be seen and praised by men, which is why the Pharisees did them. So what Paul's doing here and using the word now or the word therefore is actually getting all the way down to our motivations. In light of this, in light of these facts, in light of what God is doing and what he's done for you, therefore, on that basis, we do these things. In other words, we need to be motivated by the right things when we obey the Lord. So, again, it's a check, beloved. Um, as we walk through the rest of this book and we see tons of commands and even don't live like the world around you, this command tonight, um, we need to be careful, check our hearts, and, and figure out why am I not living like the world around me? Am I, am I trying to throw mud in their face saying I'm just a better person than you are so I can proudly walk around? If that's the case, we're, we're missing something. In light of the fact that God has saved me the way he did and he loves the church and he's building the church and I love God and I love the church too, in light of that as, as my motivation, now I'm not going to live as the rest of the world because I, because I love the church and I want the church to shine in this world that desperately needs hope and I want the people inside the church to be blessed. So, just that on the word on the word now as he transitions into, into this. Um, he says that he's testifying in the Lord. Now this I say and testify in the Lord. So uh, but he's, really, he's really heaping up authority as it were. <laughs> he's not saying, look, now therefore I'm, I'm going to tell you something. But he's saying I'm testifying in the Lord. So he's saying, look, this isn't just my personal opinion. Uh, this isn't just me, Paul, talking like, like you know, brother to brother, brother to sister. Uh, I'm testifying to you in the Lord. Uh, so whatever he's about ready to say is extremely important in his mind. Uh, the Holy Spirit believes it's very important, and Paul believes it's very important. And then he says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now, there's a certain stripe of Christian, and it probably resides in each of our hearts, who can look at 
all of the doctrines of grace and see how God has saved us from eternity past, before the foundations of the world, he put his love upon us, he chose us in Christ, who understands the doctrine of election, uh, predestination, and perseverance of the saints, who grasps all this and then can conclude that, therefore, I can live however I please. And Paul is, I'm not saying he's going after that. He goes after that in some other letters. But at least what he's teaching here goes after that, saying that's absolutely wrong. Uh, if we really believe in the doctrines of grace and how God saves us, Paul's saying, therefore, you have to live a certain way. And, he, and here's the first thing he's going to say. You can't live like this. If, if God has saved you, delivered you, united you to Jesus Christ, for by grace you have been saved, and has good works for you to do, which he prepared beforehand, that you should walk in them. If that's what's happened in your life, you can't live a certain way. You can't live like the rest of the world. And Paul is so adamant about what we're not supposed to be doing that he starts there. <laughs> this isn't an afterthought, but he starts there before he dives into how we are supposed to be living. Um, and I, So I just, look, if you... Let's say you amassed all of your wealth, okay? You sold your house, you sold your cars, you cashed in your 401k, and maybe you amassed like 150,000 bucks or something. You go buy a fishing boat for 100,000 bucks, okay? Really nice boat. Then you pour the rest of your money into repairing it and making this like even better than a Bubba Gump shipping boat or whatever, whatever kind of fishing boat you like. How many of you, after putting everything you're worth into this boat, would just pull up the anchor one day and let it float out to sea and say, well, boat, do whatever you want? Well, none of us would, right? That would be a horrible waste of resources and money. Beloved, when God saves us, he brings us into the kingdom, not just to say, do whatever you want until you get to heaven, but he pours himself into us. He heavily invests in us so that we will be useful in his kingdom. In other words, God has a use for us in heaven, to be sure. We're going to be praising him. He wants us there. That's the, that's the goal, right? The end game of God's redemption plan is eternal bliss with him in his presence, praising him. But in the meantime, he's got a lot of work for us to do, and he's got a plan, and it is this. I want you to live a certain way. So what Paul's talking about here through the rest of the letter is, uh, Lord, how do you want me to live? You, you've done all this for me. What, what do you want me to do? And so he's describing that in fairly good uh, detail. He also uses the, the language no longer. One more thing I want to look at. Um, we should no longer walk, walk uh, is simply a metaphor for live. He wants us to no longer live as the Gentiles did. Now, in Ephesus, this would have been powerful, the language of no longer. If you were in Ephesus, uh, you have a, about a 25,000-person stadium you could go watch plays in. It's like a you know, massive movie theater, right? Movie theater on steroids. Uh, you've got uh, uh, shows that go on. You've got even, uh, in, in many ways, gladiator games, things you can fill your minds and hearts up with. And really kind of at the center of it is the temple of Artemis or Diana, depending on whether you want to use uh, Latin or Greek. And uh, she was viewed as a goddess of fertility, which means she's a, the, the sex goddess. And the temple had a lot of money in the treasury as well. So you can imagine what's going on in this temple. Tons of eunuchs, tons of prostitutes. That was life in Ephesus. If you were in Ephesus and you worshiped the local deities, then you did these things day in and day out. And Paul is saying to the Ephesians, you can no longer do this. In other words, he knows they were. So you had a former life. You were walking in these things. You were living in these things. But I'm, I'm testifying in the Lord that you can no longer live as the Gentiles do. In other words, something happened in their life, a definitive break called salvation, a definitive break called regeneration. They were born again. 
Now he's saying in light of this, when the Holy Spirit came to live in you, you, you're on a different path now, a different trajectory. So that life is over. Big old black wall, big, big line drawn in the sand, whatever you want to do, partition wall up. And now off we go. You can't do that any longer. So that's his command to uh, the people at Ephesus. No, they can no longer live as the Gentiles live. And we might ask, if you didn't go into detail, well, how do they live? What, what's their life like? And he walks into uh, some, some details, kind of general details, not the specifics, but enough that we can conjure up some pictures if we'd like. And the first portrait of such a life is uh, in the language and the futility of their minds. So they, they live in the futility of their minds. Now, the word futility has a few synonyms. Here they are. Uh, useless, idle, empty, fruitless, powerless, lacking truth, or without value. And you might throw in the language of useless or empty. Uh, so they live in the emptiness of their mind or the uselessness of their mind. In other words, what fills their outlook on life or their, their mental picture of life or the way they approach life are empty things, useless things that don't finally matter, not eternal things, but pointless temporal things. Uh, Solomon would have said it with a different word, vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. And what he came to discover is something that the natural mind, the non-Christian mind is, is living in, but they don't understand that it's futility. You know, Solomon chased after knowledge. At the end, he said, what? Knowledge is vanity. And then he went on to self-indulgence. I mean, you have all these headings as he's just described. Self-indulgence, maybe that's worth living for. And he indulged himself like none of us could ever afford to do in, in 10 lifetimes. And he said it's vanity, meaning it's, it's vapor. It's useless, meaningless. It doesn't, it doesn't fulfill. And then he went on to living wisely. And he even found that's vanity because when when you're done living wisely, it's just all, it's smoke, it's gone. And then working hard is vanity because you remember when you're all done working hard, you give everything you worked for to somebody else who didn't work for it. Who knows what they're going to do with it. So even that is vanity, beloved. The, the non-Christian mind lives in that realm, chasing one vanity after the next, after the next. Paul calls it the futility of the mind, the emptiness of the mind, filling it up with things that don't matter, chasing after things that don't matter. There are some people who I think capture this so well. I read, uh, whenever I read books, I always write down really good quotes in the middle of them or if I come across them online. And I had a bunch of them re just regarding futility and emptiness that I think might be helpful for us. Ernest Hemingway, there's not a quote about him, but you know, after years of writing about how this life is without meaning, that the only way we have uh, any power over death is if we find out the when and where, he, he took his own life. This is a guy who had it all, Ernest Hemingway. Cartoonist Ralph Barton um, was fairly successful as one, and he actually committed suicide as well. He said, I'm fed up with inventing devices to fill up 24 hours of the day. Uh, Mark Twain wrote, a myriad of men are born. They labor and sweat and struggle. They squabble and scold and fight. They scramble for little mean advantages over each other. Age creeps upon them. Infirmities follow. Those they love are taken from them, and the joy of life is turned to aching grief, and they vanish from a world where they were of no consequence, a world which will lament them a day and forget them forever. Albert Einstein, when I was still a rather precocious young man, I already realized most vividly the futility of the hopes and aspirations that most men pursue throughout their lives. And maybe Shakespeare said it best, life's but a walking shadow, 
a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. And today, beloved, we can see it in our culture, the futility of the mind, the chasing after empty things. Uh, there's people who actually live to keep up with the Kardashians. That's why it's so popular. Uh, live to keep up with entertainment culture. There's people who actually live to keep up with sports. Tailgating is sort of their worship service, or maybe it's the game itself, who knows, but, but it becomes almost a profession for people, chasing after these things. Or people can chase after politics. They just live for it. They die for it. It's their life. And uh, the accumulation of wealth, same thing. But the problem with all of these, the emptiness of all of these, the, the hopelessness of all of these, is that in the entertainment industry, as soon as you get into it, uh, you can lose your fame overnight. With sports, there's always someone who's better than you if you do chase after it. Uh, in politics, you have to keep power once you get it, and that's always impossible. And then finally, the accumulation of wealth, you die and give it to someone else. So what was it all for anyways? But this is where the, the non-Christian mind dwells. And Paul goes on to say that they're darkened in their understanding. Uh, powerful language. They're darkened in their understanding. It's, uh, literally, they're just blackened in their understanding. There's no light in their understanding, in their, in their mental picture of, of things. Darkness is a biblical theme. It describes the life of those who do not know the Lord. Uh, a few passages that might help us. Isaiah 60, verse 2. Behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. Luke 1, Zechariah's prophecy at verse 78. The sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness. And then John 1, 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Darkness in the, in the Bible is a theme for unbelief. It's a theme for people who don't know the Lord for being uh, shut out of where uh, the light is. And it's a result of the fall into sin. When we fell into sin, things became darkened. Our understanding darkened. Things became dark, as it were. And so uh, that's the world the non-Christian lives in. And uh, the opposite of it is, is light. We actually need light for many things, beloved. And I, I want to uh, kind of unfold here a little bit why we need light, because it, I, I hope it will help us um, understand the people we live around better. Light gives joy. Psalm 97.11, light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. So light and joy are here compared in the psalm. So if, if you're in light, you can have joy. We, we see it, right? What's the most depressing month in the world? Usually in the Northern Hemisphere, January, the days are shortest. Where are suicides the most common in Alaska? January, it's the hardest month to get through. There's less light. The, the fun months, June, July, August, we've got light. The days are longer. Light brings joy. Light also gives direction for life. Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So again, if, if our minds are in darkness, if our understandings are darkened, we won't know why we're here, we won't know how to live, and we won't have any purpose. Lord, we won't be able to say, Lord, what do you want me to do? It's in your word. Here's what I'm supposed to do. We will have no idea why we're supposed to be here. If you've ever walked around a house that you've never been in before in the dark, what does it do? What, hap what happens? You can walk around your own bedroom at night, right, in the dark, and you stumble over things. Uh, break your toe, ram your shin into things. Beloved, that's what it is to walk in darkness, to have a darkened understanding until you click on the lights. Then all of a sudden you can see clearly. You can navigate life well then. 
Light also brings freedom. In Acts 26, 18, Paul said, I'm, well, the Lord said, I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. So their darkness is compared to the power of Satan and light to the power of God. So if people are living in darkness, they're under the power of Satan, under a horrible taskmaster. They're enslaved to Satan. They're under his power if they're in darkness. Look, Satan's a created being. He hates God. He was cast out of heaven, likely for his pride. And what is, if he wants to do battle with God, what's the number one thing he can go after? He doesn't go after trees. He doesn't go after dogs and cats. He goes after the crown of creation, human beings made in God's image, and comes after them to darken their understanding. He did it in the garden with Adam and Eve, and he still comes after people to this day, darkening their understanding, beloved. That's how he's trying to destroy the kingdom of God. That's how he keeps people in unbelief. I just want to notice just a few things before we move on to the next. There, there are some Christians who have a hard time fathoming how so many intellectual people who get 36s or 1600s on their ACTs and SATs who are brilliant and bright uh, don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lloyd-Jones said this, I find it very difficult to understand why many Christian people are really troubled and worried by the fact that so many great intellectual people do not believe in Christianity, but dismiss it and deride it. Uh, beloved, it should not surprise us that, that people whose minds are in darkness uh, can't, get their, can't, can't figure out this whole good news thing. Uh, it should not surprise us at all. Their understandings are darkened. Uh, you can tell them the gospel, you can unfold Christ to them, but what the fall into sin has done is it's so tainted our mind, so darkened our minds, that only until the Spirit of God comes in, we just can't get it. And uh, conversely, here's something amazing. Uh, it ought to seem incredible to each born-again Christian, each of us here, that we actually do understand the good news, that when you hear this, that when you read it in the Word, that when you uh, talk to other people, you can make sense of this because your understanding is no longer darkened. That, that, that's really the divine miracle here, that we can understand these things, that we've been brought to the light. That when you see or hear of Jesus hanging on a cross somewhere, you're like, oh, that's, not, that's divine child abuse. You don't think that. Or how could God be so cruel? You don't think that. We think, wow, there's, there's God the Father loving us so much that he'd send his only son to die in our place. And Jesus signed up for this and wanted to come and bleed and die and suffer for us. And then you see the Holy Spirit raising Jesus out of the grave, clearing him, basically saying all the work's finished. Yep, he was the perfect son of God. This is amazing work. <laughs> and it ought, to, it ought to strike us, at least I hope it does, as simply a miracle that you and I understand that, <clears throat> that we not just understand it, but love it, that we see the beauty in it, the glory in it, what Greeks call foolishness. Paul said, look, we preach Christ crucified because it's the power of salvation, and that's exactly what it is for, for those who are God's children. He goes on to write that they're alienated from God. In verse 18, they're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Now, this alienation has to do with uh, being cut off or being a stranger to or being unfamiliar with or not belonging to someone. Uh, you're, you're sort of disowned. You're not someone's possession. 
meaning you belong to someone else. You're an outsider. So they're alienated or cut off from, catch this, the life of God. Well, this is significant. They're not just cut off from a few friendships, but from the very life of God himself. So this is really relational language. Uh, God can be related to, and they're cut off from sort of God's inside life, from the life that is his. Now, Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden, which is a beautiful portrait of being connected with the life of God, being inside the life of God. What happened at the fall is that when they were moved from the garden after they sinned, they were cut off from that life. And we really don't know how to deal with it. Being alienated from the life of God means something, beloved. We, we can't live without our God. We, we can't do it. And you can see this in the world where, where non-Christians can't have a satisfying, encouraging, fulfilling relationship with the only true and living God. They invent other gods and then they enter into a life or relationship with them. Whether it be cell phones, social media, whether it be a career, whether it be family, whether it be fill in the blank, beloved. But we can always tell each other's gods by this. Every worshiper must take time to build a relationship with their God. So wherever we put our time, that's where our God is. And we, it shouldn't surprise us then that when people are alienated from the life of God, they make their own gods and they spend a lot of time relating to the gods that they have fashioned. And you'll, you'll see it everywhere in the world. How can you tell people's gods? Where do they spend their time? Where do they freely say, hey, I'm in? They don't even check their calendar. They don't even ask other people. They say, I'm in. I'll spend all the time that's necessary. That's usually where their hearts are, where our own hearts are as well. So whenever we're alienated from God, we try to fill the void with small gods, and it never works. Bertrand Russell, famous mathematician, philosopher, one of my favorites. I loved his book, well, I'm Not a Christian. He, he was born into a Christian home, was taught to believe in God. He rejected his training, became an outspoken atheist. His daughter, Catherine Tate, said this about him. Somewhere at the bottom of his heart and the depths of his soul, there was an empty space that had once been filled by God, and he never found anything else to put in it. Brilliant man. He never found anything else to put in it. His own daughter saying that about him. Uh, alienation from God doesn't matter. Of course it does. Beloved, these are people we live around. Uh, it, if you and I were alienated from the life of God, here's what we would do. We would erect small gods, small G gods, and we would worship them with all the zest and the zeal with which we serve our current capital G God. We would think day in and day out, how can I please them? How can I get their favor? How can I love them? How can I worship them? In the same way that we think, how can we love and worship and please our Heavenly Father? It would just be replaced. That's the life of the mind. Over and over again, this passage is the mind, the mind. That's the life of the mind of a non-Christian, where the Ephesian Christians used to be and currently aren't. And then he goes on to describe why they were alienated, because they are ignorant of God due to hardness of heart. So their hard hearts are because they continue to reject the truth of the gospel. That's where their hard hearts are coming from. And if you continue to reject the truth of the gospel, then you remain in ignorance. And you can never really know anything about the Lord and have no relationship with him. So he's kind of going on a string here. Uh, they are alienated from God. Why? Because they're ignorant of God. Why? Because their hearts are hard. 
So in order to change their relationship with God, their hearts have to be softened. And, and then they can learn about God, and then they can be brought back into life with God. But again, the softening of a heart is only something that God can do. Hardness of heart is a, it's a hard truth. I, I'm not sure why Paul is spending so much time on, on how the Gentiles were living, but he means it for Christians to be instructed, and he wants us to know about these things for, for some reason. And maybe the, one of the reasons is, is that we can, we can be humbled to think that but for the grace of God, our hearts would be hard. We would know nothing about the Lord, and we would be cut off from his life entirely. And it's only because of the grace of God that we know anything about the Lord and actually can be satisfied and fulfilled uh, knowing him and being involved in a relationship with him. Well, in verse 19, he uh, sort of wraps this up by saying, they have become callous. It's literally they have ceased to feel pain or their past feeling is what some translations have. They no longer feel pain. Uh, that's the effect of a hard heart. Uh, if, you, if you work with your hands enough, one thing that builds up, or let's say you run or you're on your feet a lot, you build up calluses, right? And those calluses make you past feeling, or at least that's the goal of a callus, right? So that when you pick up your hammer or screwdriver all day long, or you're working or you're, you're running 10 miles or you're walking 50 miles a day in a factory floor or something, calluses put you past feeling. So your hands think, this isn't bad. And, and, and break out in blisters, and your feet don't rebel and say, what are you doing to me? But a callus helps your body move past feeling. Well, here's what can happen to the human heart in a horrible way, is that it can become calloused, past feeling. And this is what happens in the life of non-Christians, beloved. A heart can actually become calloused, but calloused to really good things. Not calloused to pain and to wear and tear like good calluses on our hands, but callous to sin, Callous to shame, to regret, to guilt, to pain in others, to callous to even the, the glory of God and, and wanting to praise Him. A heart can actually get a callous on it so that, so that if any sort of conviction might come in, the callous protects the heart from feeling it. It's beyond feeling now. It's a heart like C.S. Lewis said. It, it's locked in a box and it just grows hard and cold and it can't feel anything anymore. It's a horrible portrait, but it's it's what happens when we continue to live in sin. And so the more we sin, the more the callous builds itself up. The more people sin, the more it builds up. And you can see this many times on those who've been 60 or 70 years old. You'd think that the older people would get, the softer they would become toward the gospel. But actually, many times when you look at it, the older people get, many times their hearts become so calloused. And maybe the God they thought they would love in later generations um, uh, maybe, they, maybe they thought they would finally turn to him, but their heart has become so callous they, they have a very difficult time uh, doing it. And with their calloused heart, continuing in verse 19, they give up themselves to sensuality, um, which is unbridled lust, or it's kind of off-the-wall sinfulness. No restraint. No restraint at all. And they're greedy to practice every kind of impurity. They just they lust after it. They want it. Well, what do we do with this? Just, I want us to notice three things and then we'll stop. This is the life of someone who's not a Christian. It's the, the life every one of us would be living, but for the grace of God. It's the life that the Ephesian Christians that Paul is writing to, they knew this well. This described them. Uh, 
one of the things I want us to consider is this. If, if we listen to some Christians talk, it's possible to receive the impression that one of the most important things we need to do as believers is to try and convince non-Christians to live like believers. And that's just not Paul's mentality. It, it's, it's actually impossible. The greatest need for Christians is for us to be living like Christians, not like the Gentiles. And so that's what Paul's just nailing home, right? He's not saying, look, go out into the world and, and even if people are unbelievers, force them to live like Christians. When you read this description, the only conclusion we can come up with is that it's just not even possible. Uh, people can moralistically put themselves in a box and follow some commands. Absolutely, that's very possible. And it can make life easier. And there is a way that this works in the civil government that, 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 that can be helpful as far as lawmaking goes. But beloved, we should never be disappointed that non-Christians don't live like Christians. Um, it's not even possible that they do unless the grace of God comes in. So we're out evangelizing. We're telling people the good news. Uh, but, but there is something that we need to be doing. I already mentioned it. Us, we need to be not living like non-Christians. And we need to be living like believers in this fallen world. Second thing I want us to notice, if this is the inner psychology of someone by nature, then surely not a single one of us can convert anybody. It's just, it's not possible. And so the work of conversion, church planting, evangelizing, being kingdom witnesses, uh, has to involve prayer. If God doesn't save anybody, then nobody's going to be saved. Uh, you and I cannot enlighten somebody's mind. We can't turn this kind of situation around. Nobody could have done it for us. We can't do it for anybody else. Only God can. And then finally, just this. <laughs> what a miracle that God out of people like this, which we all were at one time, whether we remember it or not, conceived in this mess. What a miracle that God can create worshipers out of people like this. This is just, it's just remarkable. It's hard to even put it into words that God can take dead sinners like you and me with this kind of understanding, this kind of mindset, this kind of outlook on life, this kind of horrible sinfulness, and he can turn us into people who have hearts which love him delight in him, are satisfied in him, can't wait to see him, and will we'll die before we'll walk away from him. That's a, that's a divine miracle. And beloved, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's happened in you. So each of us here is, is really a walking miracle. Let's pray.